Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. First, take off your coat, Violet. Boy, what weird-looking coat hangers. <gasps> Little surprises around every corner, but nothing dangerous. Don't be alarmed. And as soon as your outer vestments are in hand, we'll begin. Now, will the children kindly step up here? Floods, fire, frost of frippery. Accidents? What kind of accidents? I didn't know we had to sign anything for this tour. I can't see what it says in the bottom. Violet, you first. Sign here. Hold it. Let me through here, you kids. Violet, baby, don't you sign anything there. What's this all about? Standard form of contract. Don't talk to me about contracts, Wonka. I use them myself. They're strictly for suckers. Yes, but you wouldn't begrudge me a little protection. A drop. I don't sign anything without my lawyer. My broker don't sign anything either. Then she don't go in. I'm sorry, rules of the house. I want to go in. Don't you dare stop me. I'm only trying to help you, sweetheart. Give me that pen. You're always making things difficult. Nicely handled, Baruka. She's a girl who knows where she's going, Violet. Wait a minute. What's all that small print there at the bottom? Oh, if you have any problems, dial information. Thank you for calling. Mike, Augustus. Violet. I assume there's an accident indemnity clause. Never between friends. Saw this in a movie once. Guy signed his wife's insurance policy. Then he bumped her off. Clever. What about me, Grandpa? Sign away, Charlie. We got nothing to lose. Let's go in. Come on. Patience. Patience, little dear. Everything has to be in order. Everyone signed? Yes. Good. On we go. Forty-four, 100% pure. Just through the other door, please. We must press on. Come along. Come along. Ah, here we are. Oh, don't be a darn fool, Walker. That's the way we came in. It is. Are you sure? We've just come through there. How do you like that? What is this, Walker? Some kind of fun house? Why, having fun? I've had enough. I'm not going in there. Come on, Violet. We're getting out of here. Oh, you can't get out backwards. Got to go forwards to go back. Better press on. Hey, the room is getting smaller. No, it's not. He's getting bigger. 
He's at it again. Where's the chocolate? I doubt if there is any. I doubt if any of us will get out of here alive. Oh, you should never, never doubt what nobody is sure about. You're not squeezing me through that tiny door. You're off your bleeding nut, Wonka. No one can get through there. My dear friends, you are now about to enter the nerve center to the entire Wonka factory. So, first thing we need to mention is that movie is somehow 50 years old. Looks like it was filmed yesterday. The second thing we're going to mention is that they did a remake of this with Johnny Depp, and we're never going to talk about that again because it doesn't exist and it doesn't count. So we pick up this scene as they enter into the chocolate factory. Five kids who have received golden tickets, not of their own earning. And they come into the factory and they're taken through this labyrinthian set of ideas and what do we need to do and how do we get in? And then Willy Wonka leads them down a strange narrowing hallway to a tiny door. You're not going to squeeze me through that tiny door. And a moment after the scene cuts off, what you find is he plays a musical lock and opens that tiny door and through a most massive portal you can't imagine this group of skeptics and scoundrels and suspicious-minded people step into pure imagination. They step into the factory itself where everything is edible and the flowers are little teacups and there's a chocolate river running through it all. They step into a world they could never have imagined, much less imagined coming through that tiny little door. The narrowness of the way they got there through this bizarre backwards room and through the tiny little... The, the narrowness of that whole confusing way through is lost completely once they glimpse the beauty and the majesty of the factory. In the film, the whimsy of Willy Wonka ebbs and flows, kind of comes and goes, and it's matched by this dark sometimes peculiar, sometimes confusing character whose behaviors and ideas seem to turn the world on its head as the children look and say, why would anyone do it this way? He just keeps saying, let's press on. The way Willy Wonka runs his chocolate factory seems counter to every instinct of those around him. And so we're going to hear from Jesus today. And I needed you to have this primer of this bizarre Willy Wonka. The lens of someone who swims upstream and is at perfect peace in this world of chaos. The, the, the lens of someone who makes their way through a reality, upending the reality he makes his way through. He's undoing beliefs and turning normal on his head. I must be clear, Jesus is not Willy Wonka. And Willy Wonka is not Jesus. Jesus does not wear a top hat and a purple jacket. And so don't go too far with the metaphor. But somewhere in the black and white letters of your Bible, you and I have lost the playful, whimsical, subversive Jesus. We've lost the Jesus who is joyfully undoing the ways of the world to install his ways, the way. And so at times, you and I become stuck. We walk through life and we get stuck at that narrow door and we forget 
that walking with Jesus is to walk into an unimaginable reality, into a world we can't quite believe until we're in it, and then we can't believe we weren't in there all along. You and I get stuck at that, that narrow door. We become the people saying, you're not squeezing me through that tiny door. And yet, God invites us in through a narrow door into a vast and unimaginable and beautiful reality. So we're going to pick up and read from there. In Luke chapter 13, it says, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds, they make nests in its branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus went through towns and villages teaching as he went, always pressing on towards Jerusalem, towards his goal, towards his crucifixion. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? I have to imagine he smirked and replied, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will still reply, I don't know you or where you've come from. Then you'll say, but we ate and drank with you. You, you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I, I tell you, I don't know you or where you've come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets of the kingdom of God. But you will be thrown out. He says, people will come from all over the world, east, west, north, and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be greatest then. Some who are the greatest now will be least then. So let's start with the narrow door, and we'll come back to the yeast and the mustard. He's pressing on towards Jerusalem. He's pressing on towards his crucifixion, walking through the hostile land of of Samaria, And he says this kind of strange phrase for us, work hard to enter through the narrow door. Everything we've been taught about Jesus and Christianity is that it's it's grace, not not hard work. It's it's grace by faith, not, not earning through good behavior. And so I think that's trap language for us. I think our English translation of that is kind of trap language. Because for us, hard work equals success, and it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and it's work hard to advance in the company. It's build your business. It's it's be diligent. Work a little bit harder than the next guy or gal, and you'll get there. But I don't think that's what he's saying at all. So Eugene Peterson in the message translation says it this way. That same verse, he says, put your mind on your life with God. The way to life and the way to God is vigorous. It's vigorous. It's hard work. And it requires your total attention. Put your mind on your life with God. What Jesus is essentially saying there is you have to concentrate on this. You actually have to focus on this. You have to want this. Don't work hard as in climbing the ladder into heaven. Work hard to hold your attention on the thing that truly matters. Give yourself to it wholly because it's not natural. Jesus is saying the thing that I'm doing isn't obvious until it's obvious. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not, it's not something you get until you get it. This narrow door is a complicated thing for us. We struggle with the narrow door. I've had a lot of questions over the years of ministry of people going, what about this narrow door? What about my neighbor? What about my relative? What about my loved one? Why would we love a God who's exclusive, and why would an exclusive God choose to love or not love us? 
narrowness in our culture is negative. Almost every time you hear narrow, you never, you never hear narrow in a positive light. And these days, if you were to be called narrow-minded, there are a few greater insults. Our culture would say narrow is one of the worst things you can be. And so they look at Christianity, our culture, our society would look at our faith and would say, it's so narrow, though. It's so intolerant. It's so exclusive in a world where tolerance and acceptance and inclusivity are our prized ideals. But here's the thing. We have to remember who we're serving. We're not serving typical organizational, governmental structures. We're serving sort of playful, subversive Jesus who keeps telling us about this inside-out kingdom, about an upside-down kingdom. And an inside-out and an upside-down kingdom is an odd thing. And so we should expect at times that it runs against our understanding of the world around us. It runs against our human sensibilities. In a kingdom where the king is a servant, in a kingdom where the least become the greatest and the last become first, in a kingdom like that, where the chosen are sinners and enemies and underdogs and prostitutes and scoundrels, well, of course the door is narrow, we would start to think. Because only in that kingdom does narrow begin to invert its meaning, just like everything else. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, narrow is the path and wide, narrow is the path, and few those who find it, wide is the path of destruction. Wide is the path of destruction. Salvation is found on the narrow path, but wide is the path of destruction. To which we say, what? Why wouldn't he make the salvation path the wide one, the obvious one, the easy one? Why wouldn't he do that? And yet if we're serving an upside-down kingdom, if we're serving a, a Jesus that flips the world on its head, we begin to understand in a new way. The way that looks most obvious is most dangerous, and the way that seems most treacherous or even impossible is really the widest and most wonderful after all. Because up is down, and in is out, and first shall be last, and, and you better press on the only way back is to go forward. Like this scene from Willy Wonka, the, the kids are ready. Jesus kept talking about faith like a child. Kids, were, they were ready. They're ready. And the adults have questions and suspicions and vulnerabilities and wait a minute. And we don't sign anything without our lawyers. And that's the way we work through legalism, isn't it? Well, we don't, we don't want to commit to anything unless we can get the rules and right. How do we do this just right? How do I form it to where we know everybody is safe? And yet it's children we're signing away whatever it is because they have a sense that something on the other side of this funhouse door might be worth it. What I think we take from that is that belief leads us into wild places. We live in a pretty tame world. As much as we swirl in the chaos of emotion and social media and the news cycle and all these things, when you really get down to it, we live in a really tame world with a really mundane existence. We wake up, we eat one of the three things we always eat for breakfast. We work our way through our morning the way we always work our way through our morning. We eat one of the four different things we'll have for lunch, and we'll do what we do for the afternoon, and eventually we get into the rut that we watch the same show or we call the same people or we sit in the same spot for dinner every night, and then we go to bed and we do it all again the next day. We do it safely. We do it with side-impact airbags, and we do it with all the little things that keep us safe. But belief leads us into wild places, into unexpected places, into new realities. 
Maybe you're more of a Narnia person than a Wonka person. Maybe you're like, I don't know about this weird Wonka thing. I don't know. I'm a Narnia person. So you're like righteous and holy and you, that's your thing. Let me read you a short scene from the last battle from the Chronicles of Narnia. Tyrion, his character, enters into a cramped little thatched roof stable. Imagine it. Little logs holding it up. Little grass roof. Tiny. Can anyone even fit in there, he's thinking. So Tyrion steps into the thatch roof stable, and I'll read from here. It says, he looked around and could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead. He enters the building. There's blue sky overhead and a grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. His new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes. Yes, said the Lord Diggory. It is bigger inside. Its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy. In our world, too, a stable once had something inside that was bigger than our whole world. Are you starting to get the picture here? This idea that the gospel on the outside looks small and cramped and narrow, and the view from our culture, the view from those who don't follow Christ goes, why would anybody go into this tiny little narrow place? And yet once you get inside of grace, once you get inside of God's kingdom, you look around and it is massive. And its vastness is so overwhelming that you can't imagine anybody wouldn't want to come in with you. Queen Lucy references this manger in Bethlehem that looked rustic and insignificant but contained significance the world had never known before. Grace is like this. Grace by faith alone. Grace by faith alone. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. What are the rules I need to follow? How, how much do I need to give? What, what is it? How do I get the status? No, no, no. It's grace. It's a gift by faith alone. And the world goes such a narrow passageway. So grace is this tiny little gift given only to a select few. It's, it, it's so narrow. It's so undesirable. It's too exclusive. It's too small. And then you and I get inside of grace. It doesn't feel small at all, does it? You get inside of grace and it's this whole other room. You enter in through the narrow door. Jesus is the narrow door. Let me spoil the ending. Jesus is the narrow door. There's only one way in. But once you go in through that door, you look around and you cannot imagine the vastness of space. And the freedom it brings Whereas the wide door looking so easy and pleasurable along the way, that wide path seems to narrow as you go down it. And walking the wide path, the reason says, the reason Jesus says it's the path to destruction is as you walk that path, you feel like you have all of the options in the world, total freedom. Here we go. And it narrows at the far end. And then what you find is there is a suffocation of spirit on that broad path that you can chase the things the world has to offer. You can chase the things that society says is important. You can chase status and fame. You can chase money and sex. You can chase all the things the world says matter. And that path gets strangely narrow at the far end where this narrow path called grace gets wider as you go. Narrow the path and few those who find it. So let's talk about mustard seeds for a minute. Mustard seeds and yeast. Jesus takes these unremarkable things over and over. He takes unremarkable things and he makes incredible stories from them. When I was in Israel a couple of Decembers ago, our tour guide handed me a mustard seed. 
somebody has said I need to use more lotion. I would agree. This mustard seed in the middle of my palm, I couldn't quite believe it. I said, what? What do you mean? He just walks down. He's giving one to everybody on our trip. And we're standing on a hillside over the Sea of Galilee, and he says, this is kind of what Jesus might have done. Might have been in a place like this where he picks it and he sets it in people's hands and he goes, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed to which everybody in his hearing would have gone, what? This forgettable, is it dirt? That's the kingdom of God? And only they were starting to learn that in this kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about, unassuming things become all-encompassing. That yeast, the invisible sprinkling of something into a bowl of dough, that almost invisible yeast can make its way through the fullness of it and cause an incredible rising. Like a boy, a boy born in an animal stall, unseen by all but lowly shepherds, would somehow go on to redeem all of creation. You start getting this picture that Jesus really likes unremarkable because it's not the kingdom that they envisioned. It's not the one that you and I think of. When we think kingdom, we think grandiosity. When Jesus thinks kingdom, he goes, watch how small we can start. The least and forgotten are the ones who transform all they inhabit. Something I really want you to see in this. Jesus said the mustard seed will become a great tree where all of the birds will nest. He then references east and west and north and south. He says it will be this mustard seed will make a great tree and the birds will all find shelter in this tree. In the book of Daniel the king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. So the king has a dream and Daniel is there as his interpreter. And so let's just read this briefly so you see maybe what Jesus is alluding to. In Daniel 4, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, These are the visions, Nebuchadnezzar says, that I saw while lying in bed. The king has a dream. I looked. And before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. It grew large and strong. Its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it, every creature was fed. Daniel, the prophet, interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, look, this is a kingdom. It's a kingdom with dominion to the end of the earth. The story goes on from there, and it takes some twists and turns, and yet that would have been a familiar passage a familiar concept that a tree grows up and welcomes in, shelters all the birds of the land, north, south, east, west. Jesus is speaking of the kingdom he brings like the kingdoms of old. Jesus is speaking of a mustard seed that grows into an unimaginably large kingdom. This is Jesus' subtle declaration, yet another subtle declaration that he is the king. And he's coming to set up a kingdom in which all people will find shelter, in which all people will find abundance, in which all people will find provision. All people matters. This is not just for Jews. It's the message being spoken here. This is not just for the righteous who have earned their way up the religious ladder. This is for everyone. The book of Luke is, is written by a Gentile doctor to a Gentile named Theophilus. It's a, it's a non-Jew writing to a non-Jew. So how powerful is the imagery of a tree that includes everybody, north, south, east, and west, not just the chosen with the birthright, but people from far and wide, people who aren't already in. This is the imagery of a kingdom that extends beyond Jerusalem and makes place for everyone. The Gospel of Luke is an outsider's gospel. 
I think that's why it's our gospel. We are the outsiders in so many ways. And the gospel of Luke is an outsider's gospel. It's someone outside writing to another one outside and saying, look, he's invited us in. So the non-Jew and the mixed race and the broken and the destitute, Luke is writing, I was going to say to them, but it's probably more to us. Luke is writing about the scoundrel's rescue and the unclean person's hope. He's describing the hope of sinners and cheaters and liars and fools like, like you and me. Jesus is whimsically inviting people into the narrow door. Jesus is whimsically inviting people to see that in the mustard seed, in the unremarkable and forgotten, in the tiny thing that no one pays any attention to because what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus is inviting them to see that from this will be the thing that all of creation bows to, to enter into a world of pure imagination, except that in Jesus' world, this is real and it is eternal. I'll read again. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? He holds it out. It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in the garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. Do you see the beauty now in the mustard seed? The kingdom built on inauspicious beginnings that will grow big enough and have room enough to invite the most lost and the most reviled outsider to become an insider. That the baby born in the animal stall because there was not shelter for his family will slip the narrative and become shelter for all through his life and his death and his resurrection. That even the story of Christ is one of shelter being denied so that shelter might be provided. It's from small to become big. It's from upside down and inside out to make its way into our hearts so that we no longer look at the world and try to conform to the way it's done around us, but we say we are swimming upstream too that we are to take on this strangely whimsical look on the world, this joy that permeates our every day that goes, I know they do it that way, but we do it this way. I know they want to go this way, but we're going to go that way. I know they say to do it like this, but we're going to do it like that. Watch. We're going to invite outsiders in until everybody inside looks around and says, we're all a bunch of outsiders. Then we realize it's actually we're all inside because Jesus, Jesus does this inside out thing. So that when you and I enter that thatched roof stable, expecting cramped quarters of a religious suffocating life, we instead find that grace is the vast and unimaginable breath of true life. You and I should experience the kingdom of God as a grace that is spread farther than our eyes can see. And in that, we should find that Jesus is the ultimate resting place and shelter. That in Jesus, in the narrow door of Jesus, we have healing from our brokenness. We have joy from our sorrow. We find life amidst death. This is the gospel that is an invitation to the skeptical and the suspicious For anyone who's ever looked at the gospel of Jesus Christ and gone, that's too narrow. This is Jesus' way of saying, just you wait and see. If you have the faith to enter, the narrow door reveals an expanse of life beyond your wildest dreams. He calls it eternity. World without end. With the gracious and loving and indescribably beautiful author of all things. So he looks at you and he looks at me and he gets a smirk on his face and he goes, on we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the 
unremarkable stories are the stories that are most remarkable to us. God, it is arresting and humbling to be in your kingdom and to recognize that you've invited us in, you've made us into insiders where we were once so far outside. Father, it is humbling to see ourselves in the light of your glory, that you would use us, the lost and the broken, you would make us whole, you would find us. Father, when we were far, you brought us near. When we were hungry, you saw us fed. God, I pray that today as we encounter your word and we dig through it and we try to uncover the heart and the character, God, that you would challenge us to swim upstream against the world going down a wide path. God, you would offer us narrow door after narrow door and surprising beauty of grace after surprising beauty of grace. God, find us in the vastness of your love, in the ocean of your grace. Find us in the fullness of who you are. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.